Episode 4 of the Off The X Podcast, I am Cody. Uh, tonight's guest we had on Matthew Kovats. Matthew is a former Marine security guard, but also a former diplomatic security special agent. So in the podcast, we talked about a couple things. We spent some time talking about his time as a Marine security guard, the training that Marine security guards go through, uh, how they fit into the DS mission, the diplomatic security mission, and uh, his relationships uh, or the relationship between Marine security guards and uh, regional security officers, which is, if you watch any of my videos, what uh, DS special agents are called overseas. So uh, he also talked about some time in Kathmandu when the uh, embassy was under ordered departure and was only the Marines, the RSO, and essential staff. And uh, got, got, got some good intel, a good story out of that. Matt uh, came, went on to be uh, a DS special agent, as mentioned, uh, starting out in the Chicago field office. He took advantage of the field office. Uh, I've mentioned this in several of uh, my YouTube videos that uh, when you're in the field office, you know, raise your right hand and go. Um, raise any hand and go, as a matter of fact. Uh, volunteer for anything you can. Get get what you can out of it. Um, uh, Matt went to, to Benghazi. He was actually there right before the first guest of the Off the X podcast, which was John Fluker. Uh, John replaced, uh, was, one of the, was on the team that replaced Matt. And um, anyway, Matt has some good stories about Benghazi and uh, some good intel about a bombing that happened at the hotel that they were staying in that Ambassador Chris Stevens and Matt and his team were staying in. So good information there. Talked about his time in Iraq. That's where I met him for the first time. He did protective ops out of Fob Shield, which is uh, a, well, it's not an offsite. It was a Fob as a forward operating base, but it was called Fob Shield back then. And he uh, ran some, uh, some high threat protection operations uh, out of Fob Shield. So, Went on to uh, a headquarters tour in uh, in D.C. or in Arlington, Virginia, and talked about that, and then uh, over to Kabul, Afghanistan. So we talked about a number of different things, um, and it's about an hour and a half podcast, and we got to dig a little deeper. Um, I, I, try, I try to keep these podcasts under two hours, or that's my goal at least, and uh, sometimes when, when you have so many assignments or so many you know fascinating stories... Uh, you don't get to dig as deep. But we dug a little deeper in these, in, in, in Matt's stories. And, uh, you know, there's always the opportunity for Matt or John or Tony or or Michael to come back. Those are all my previous guests and and go in detail. And if you want to hear more about a particular story, let me know. Find me. Info at CodyParon.com. Comment on any of uh, YouTube videos or my, uh, my Instagram or social media or whatever. And uh, we'll have them back on. But anyway... For now, go and enjoy this podcast with Matthew Kovats. I'll catch you on the backside. Thanks, y'all. Out. There we go. All right, man. Thank you for coming on. Oh, no, my pleasure, man. I. Uh, so you and I share a similar background in that we're both MSGs and both went to uh, diplomatic security. But... Uh, if you could, man, just tell us kind of about MSG training, about the MSG mission, MSG as in Marine Security Guard for those listeners, and how it fits into the uh, to the DS mission. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, 
Marine security guard duty was, uh, at the time that I was on the program was a very, uh, desirable B billet, you know, especially for those, uh, corporals and sergeants who were looking to move ahead in their career, uh, who, who certainly didn't want to go to the drill field or be on recruiting duty. So, uh, it seemed like an easy fit for me, uh, to volunteer. And then it was also a chance to get out of Camp Lejeune, which, uh, for any of your listeners who have had the opportunity to be there, um, in Jay Vegas, uh, would jump on it in a chance. So, uh, I went, um, PCS from Campbell's June up to Quantico in March, I think, 2004. And uh, MSG school was was six weeks for at the time for watchstanders. Um, pretty rigorous training, I think. Um, not necessarily physically, but uh, mentally. Um, a lot. You're taking in a lot of information. Um either the younger guys don't, you know, you just don't know what you don't know, or you're, you're a deck commander and you're trying to, you know, play both sides uh, of the field. If you will, you have to still uh, remain, you know, disciplined and and lead your Marines, but you're also learning the the side piece of being in the state department and and navigating those um, obstacles, if you will. But we spent uh, six weeks in schoolhouse, you know, everything from from our pistol training, uh, going through DS qualifications, non-lethal, uh, to running the board, right? Um, I remember during training getting that uh, evaluation on, on everything that we had to know, entry, exit, you know, how to lock down, mag the doors, to pan and tilt and all, all or CCTV uh, at the time when you're in this formal school and, and you're having to be reminded by the instructors almost on a daily basis uh, how high the washout rate is and you're, you're trying to learn as much as you can. It could be a pretty rigorous training. I think um, MSG school really only gives you a, a small piece of what you need to know before you get out, uh, get out to post and uh, actually do the job, right? You, you think you know what you're doing in post one uh, until your first, until your first mid shift and uh, the dung cover goes off, uh, whether that's an actual or that's a, that's a local guard who, who sits on the sensor, you know, cause he's fallen asleep. Um, you know, things, things get real at that point. And you're you're forced to uh, you know really fall back on your training quite a bit. Um, yeah, there's a lot to it. I uh, were you still running the PR twenty fours back then? Oh yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I came on. I came on. We were doing PR twenty fours, but I think towards the end of my last post, we finally went to ASP. Okay. Yeah, I just remember all the. I'd never used a PR24, obviously. I was a 19-year-old Marine. And they're teaching you all these hand locks and wrist locks with this PR24. Like, who's going to use this? Right. You know, but uh, I thought it was a great school. We had 110 in our class and 53 made it. And I tell people, the when people do wash out, it's almost always, uh, and I may get the terminology wrong, but 
on the panel or the board. Right. And it's, and it's due to uh, lack of interpersonal skills. I mean, people fail at the baton or fail at weapons or maybe even PT or the tests because there's a lot of tests. I remember early mornings, 0530, studying to 1130 and repeat, you know, for six weeks. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the people uh, dropped from those peer evaluations and uh, after that panel. And then after you made the panel, I felt like that was all right. If you, made, if you pass the panel, you're, you're good to go, you know. Yeah, I don't think um, I'm, I'm sure we had someone uh, at least in my student detachment that that washed out for that, uh, and, and I don't recall what we used to call it, but it was like, you know, they'd ask everyone in the student detachment whether or not they would serve with that person. Yeah, um, and I know that we lost a a number of those a number of folks through that. Um, you know, fortunately, you know, I, I made it through and, and, and a number of my other classmates did not. So I have to be, um, happy with that. Cause I would be pissed, you know, if I went through five, five weeks of that schoolhouse and then just get peered out. Um, but you gotta, go, you gotta know that going in, right. If, yeah. if you, if you study, um, and know what, what kind of school you're getting into, then you're going to know that that peer, that peer eval is coming, you know? Yeah. So how does, uh, explain a little bit how MSG fits into DS mission, what your responsibilities are at post, and then we'll get into a couple of your assignments. Sure. Uh, the primary mission of Marine Security Guard is to protect classified information. You know, that, that MSG standing post one in his, in his dress blues or version of uh, is that first line to ensure that people aren't coming into the embassy uh, in an attempt to uh, compromise or, or take any classified information, especially not uh, after hours when no one is around, right? Uh, the secondary mission is to uh, protect personnel and property, um, which I think is more relevant these days than it, it probably was 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And certainly more relevant than it was, you know, 30 years ago, back in the old SY days, or, or 40 years ago, even um, Clayton Lone Tree time. So, you know, we, as as Marine Security Guards, we were just another uh, element that the DS agents and the RSOs could use. Um, they had the responsibility of the overall security of the embassy. And that starts at, you know, the, you know, the old DS saying of the concentric rings of security and that local guard force is out there, right. And they're, they're on the outside. And then on the inside, you're going to have those, you're going to have those MSGs. And, and we, we did everything, right. We, we did internal defense. Uh, we did uh, the, um, bomb searches we did the room clearing uh, but we also did those uh, security checks right going around at two o'clock in the morning making sure that our our friendly political officer economic officer had their 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 safes locked and they're not having their passwords uh, written on post-it notes and taped underneath the keyboards and you know we were just we were just part of the larger mission i think is the best way to 
to say we were we were one element of the RSO team. That's the secret mission of the MSGs is catching people with writing their freaking passwords on a sticky and on the backside of their uh, keyboard or something. Right, right. You know, you 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 never. I think when you first get on the program, you're like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to get a, a security violation and write, write an OF 117. Uh, but by the end stuff. of it, you know, by the end of it, you're like, oh man, I got to do, I got to do another report. And, you know, and there were times where there, there'd be, there'd be employees, uh, embassy employees who were, who were not kind people. Right. And they just treated us like, like second class citizens really. And, and those probably got a little bit more scrutiny in their offices than, than others did, you know, and I remember, you know, even some of my ARSOs and I know they're still on the job, so I won't, I won't, uh, I won't name them, but if, if they had a security violation, you know, I was keen to call them at two o'clock in the morning and be like, Hey, Hey, sir, you might want to come back to the, you might want to come back to the embassy. I think you left something out and, and, you know, sure shit, my ARSO coming in, right? First tour ARSO or second tour ARSO, he's coming in at three o'clock in the morning because he forgot to put his hard drive away. And, you know, I think, I think that's the beauty that that definitely speaks to the relationship that I as a watchstander had with my ARSOs that I was comfortable, you know, calling them at three o'clock in the morning to throw them a bone rather than just write my paper and go on with my day. Right. Yeah, we usually took care of the the agents. I didn't know what to think of ARSOs when I came on. <clears throat> I learned when I was in Moscow that you know, a lot of former MSGs are DS agents, and uh, you know, they kind of. That's when I kind of started to have some interest in DS. But uh, it's across the board the same for MSGs. If you mess around with the MSGs, if you're not a nice person. Uh, we're going to go to your office every night on mids. We have eight hours to do nothing. Watch some cameras, uh, patrol, rove, and, right. go, and go find that person that gave you attitude. And, uh, and, and, and it happened. There are times for consistent for a year or a year and a half, depending on what your you know assignment was, go back to that location and somebody's going to leave their safe open uh, or leave a document out. And I mean, this is when you, I don't know how your embassies were set up and we'll talk about that here, but like in Moscow, you know, if they left something out, no one's going to see it. It may be someone in their office. And if there's no, you know, need to know, then that could be a, I guess an infraction or something, but you know, no random from the streets going to come in and get our classified, you know, but it's, it's more principle, I think, and in place to kind of teach these people some discipline and, in managing and handling classified is, is what I think is why, you know, we had it. But, um, so let's talk about Kathmandu. It sounds like, uh, I did a post the other day, you know, about different threats and I did one about civil unrest and it sounds like Kathmandu, uh, which is in Nepal. Uh, like, uh, you had some serious stuff going on. Yeah, I was, uh, I was the assistant detachment commander there in, 2006 2007 time frame and we had got there or i had gotten there shortly before uh the maoist rebels who 
I think now are listed as a as a, a terrorist organization by the State Department. I don't know if they were prior to, um, but at the time, the Maoist rebels had had led a violent overthrow of the king and the monarchy, and it led to um, some serious civil unrest, weeks and weeks of everyday protests, um, shut down the whole city. The embassy itself had went to order departure um, about, I don't know, two or three weeks into the civil unrest. It was that, it was that bad. And so during order departure, um, there's really no option to stick around, right? All non-essential family members uh, were ordered back to the States. All non-essential embassy employees were were, uh, sent home or or to different posts um, to wait it out. So when we were there, uh, it was the ambassador and his, his OMS, his secretary, or his admin support, I should say, the RSO shop, and then the MSG detachment. And we, we, luckily we were, we didn't live on compound, but we were co-located right next door. So, but every day, uh, you know, we continued pushing on, doing our mission, standing our posts. But beyond that, there was, there was nothing. We were in lockdown. Uh, We would have regular, uh, actual reacts, uh, where, you know, a protest would be making its way down the street. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of people where the embassy was situated. It was on a main street on, on ring road, um, for, for those of your listeners who are familiar and we would be, we were directly in line with the palace. So you would have to pass the American embassy to get there. And, and sure enough, every day, uh, there would be, there would be thousands of people who would, who would walk by and they would stop and, you know, we'd have people throwing rocks or, or, you know, just starting shit because they could, right. We were grossly outnumbered, uh, and they knew that. And while we weren't necessarily the target of any unrest, if you will, we were just, you know, we were a symbol, you know, mm-hmm. as I think they are, as American embassies are all over, the, all over the world is that we were a symbol of, uh, you know, the man, right. And so the, the government at the time was aligned with the monarchy. And so we just became kind of a victim of circumstance there. But I remember, um, during all of this, uh, we, the, the, the Marines were confined to our house for, you know, over, over 30 days. And we ended up running out of food. And usually, you know, we had, we had our, our local cook who would go out and do the shopping for us or the, or the mess NCO would go out and do the shopping. And with everything closed, there was no going out. Like our, our, our cook couldn't come to the house because if he would have come outside during all this, I'm sure he would have um, been in some danger. So we, we were confined to the house. We ran out of food. And what we ended up doing was um, the RSOs had arranged uh, a security escort from the uh, Nepali army 
to take us in our armored vehicle from the Marine house to the other side of town where the USAID compound was. And they had a commissary and we ended up breaking into the commissary because USAID was also subjected to the, the order departure. And so we broke into their commissary and essentially wrote a list of everything we took. And then when they came back in country, then we, we had to pay them for everything. Cause if not, where there was, I mean, there was no food, um, which luckily for me, I, I was, by that time I had been on the program, you know, two years. So I was, I was like, all right, this is what, this is what it is, right? You're in a third world country and uh, you have to be able to adapt to the civil unrest. But I remember having a few first posters who, who were in shell shock for a bit that we were, this is the way that we were operating. Maybe, maybe they had grandiose vision of being in London or Paris and it's going to be all, you know, diplomatic dinners and, you know, wearing your dress blues, but this was it. We were bolt cutters and, you know, stealing from our own people just to survive. I think that's the stuff most, some of us join for is the, the, that type of excitement. Cause I mean, 99% of the time, unless you're in a place where there's civil unrest, you're a monkey in a box, uh, you know, letting people in and uh, granted we have, we're, very well trained monkeys in a box, <laughs> right? Um, right. But uh, but how how long did the order departure last? And I think uh, maybe three months, three four months. It, w- it was it was pretty long time, I think. Uh, especially for for Kathmandu, which I think a lot of people just assume that hey, we're you know we're in we're at the top of the world, right? We're surrounded by uh buddhist monks right this is going to be a peaceful post this is going to be it's sleepy we won't have any issues up here um yeah and and three or four months order departure i'm sure uh maybe change the dynamic i think for that post as a whole right I, i don't think i don't think it was viewed as a as a sleepy post after that yeah i bet all right, man. Well, uh, let's jump ahead to diplomatic security. So you came in and uh, looks like 2010. You're in Chicago, and you had a <clears throat> you had some. You did a lot in Chicago. It sounds like I did. I had um, qu- quite the first tour. Yeah, I you know I I, I tell people on these YouTube videos like enjoy the field office, do everything you can raise your hand. I'll go take advantage of Cause you get to do some cool stuff, whether it be SD trips, uh, short-term TUIs, a couple I'd like you to talk about, or, uh, you know, investigations working with, with, uh, federal law enforcement in the area. But, um, let's talk first about, I'm just going to go down the, the, the list you gave me, but, uh, you protected Ambassador Stevens in Benghazi. You actually sounds like you came in and replaced John Fluker, who was the first guest. Is that right? You know, John actually replaced me. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. we had, right. we had yeah, a- well. yeah, so uh why don't you tell me about a little bit about that and and about Libya and 
how protective ops worked. Yeah. Benghazi is probably, I think my defining, um, assignment or, or TDY in, in my DS career, um, be it, be it a short one. Um, I, I thought at the time I remember arriving in country that I just remembered, uh, about the DS agents who went and had protected Karzai shortly after um, things in Afghanistan got started. And I remembered thinking like, all right, Hey, this is my, this is my opportunity to be known as those guys who were on, who were on KPD, who were on Karzai's detail. And so going into it, I, the, the, Let's see, the prestige of it wasn't lost on me. Um, as I was part of the very first crew um, who went into Benghazi, I knew that we were going to have to establish a lot of things. Um, I got there in May of 2011, shortly after the Arab Spring had started. And there, there was a crew that had come in just before me, uh, who actually took the barge over and brought all the vehicles in. So I wasn't like the, I wasn't the very first team in there, but I was part of the second one uh, and replaced those guys. But um, we had set up um, our base of operations was at the Tibesti hotel, which was in downtown Benghazi. And um, I'm sure everyone is pretty familiar with Benghazi now, but you know, at the time, it was the the center of the revolution uh, for the the Libyan um, transitional government, if you will, the rebel government. Because this, I was there before Gaddafi had been killed, um, so things were still very much very volatile at, at the time. Uh, no one knew what was going on as far as the future of that country was concerned. But we set up in the in the Tibesti. And we were running uh, missions every day, probably uh, probably 10, 12 hours of missions, you know, from morning until night. You know, the ambassador kept a very busy schedule. Started every morning uh, with a run, you know, uh, Ambassador Stevens was, was quite the runner. And, you know, fortunate for us, he, he used to run, um, funny story is, he used to run down like on the waterfront right on the med through, through downtown Benghazi. And we, you know, the AIC at the time, we, we finally had to have a conversation and be like, listen, sir, we can't be out here running. Like you're, you're, there's not too many, not too many white guys running around right now. Uh, we don't need to be down on the, on the waterfront doing this. So, Ambassador Stevens, the the professional that he was, realized that all right, like either these guys are not going to stop hounding me about running, uh, or we'll just have to change the plan. And we did. We were able to find him a location where he could run uh, every single day in, in a safer manner. And thank God, because it was a uh, there weren't many of us in the detail who could keep up with him. So we would have to we would have to take turns. He'd put in like a like a five mile run every day. And at his pace, like 
an agent would have to run with him like a mile at a time because he was so fast and, and no one could keep up with him for five miles. So uh, the, the new location that we found, it was a big loop. So one agent could do one lap and then like another agent could jump in there and, and stay with him for the second lap. So no option for a shadow vehicle to, uh, no, I mean, no, when we, when he ran down on the waterfront, uh, we could only go so far, uh, with the vehicle, Uh, but the second location, it was, it was fairly well secured. Um, we actually ran, um, the, the annex, the CIA annex, now well-known annex, uh, was next to a uh, abandoned dairy farm. And so there was this giant loop around the annex and the farm. And so that was about as safe as we could get. And we didn't need a shadow vehicle there. Was Stevens at that time an envoy to the new transitional government? Cause I mean, the capital's in Tripoli. Yes. Yeah? So was there an ambassador in Tripoli as well? Or how did all that work out? No, I, I believe when, when Arab spring kicked off, um, and they went to order departure or even evacuated all of Libya, the ambassador and the DCM had come back to, to DC and, um, Stevens had been sent back in as the special envoy, um, to the TNC, the transitional national council, I think is the official term. So, um, but he, he was he was for all intensive purposes the the speaking on behalf of the government you know um, speaking on behalf of the president and so we had you know we held meetings as such right we we met with everyone from uh, you know uh, other ambassadors who were other envoys who were in country from allied countries as well as the transitional government and even uh, some of the rebel leadership we we met with on occasion we didn't know um what was going to happen in that in that power vacuum once things uh started to to solidify so uh stevens had to meet with everybody just in case who knew was going to come out on top right you mentioned something earlier about uh you guys took the barge over maybe the ARSOs before you were bringing in vehicles. Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit? Yeah. I, the, the crew that came in before me had to hastily set up uh, a protective mission. And so that included having uh, weapons and vehicles, comms. Uh, they had nothing in, in Benghazi. So, the airport was not really an option in order to, to get vehicles in. And and if I recall correctly, we had brought in a number of uh, up armored land cruisers and we had this beautiful armored uh, Mercedes G wagon. Um, And the only way to get those in country was to, was to take the barge or they had secured passage on a barge. And I forget where it had come from, maybe from, from Greece or uh, one of the other countries uh, in the Med. And they were able to you know, float over with those vehicles uh, and essentially our, our, all of our kit and get, get set up that way. So when I arrived in country, I just had to bring my – I just brought my personal gear with me and everything else was already 
in place thanks to those guys. That would have been a pretty uh, exciting mission to be the first guys on the ground. Oh, absolutely. Set things up. Yeah, I don't know how long their barge trip was. I could imagine that being a bit um, – could be boring at times uh, depending on how, how long it was, but also those guys just sitting there waiting, waiting to dock and then you know drive drive those out. And then you know, it's like you couldn't, you couldn't make a reservation, right? They, so they jumped in the cars and they had to go find a hotel for us to stay at or, or a secure housing. So I'm sure – you know, hats off to those guys for finding us the best place that they could. Yeah. So you guys were the victim of a car bomb. It sounds like we were sometime in June, June, 2011. Uh, the, the to hotel was the base of operations, not only for us, but for like the Germans, um, a lot of other countries from the EU, as well as all of the media that had been covering the, the Libyan revolution. Everybody was at the Tibesti hotel and, um, the bad guys, you know, they knew that. And there was some remote security, right? We had a couple of, um, third country nationals who were hired by the hotel and they would, they would stand, at the front door or the side door and they were armed, you know, probably some Sudanese, um, armed guards, but the Gaddafi supporters at the time, um, saw that and, and they saw an opportunity. So they had set some explosives, um, on a car that was just outside the hotel and detonated it. Um, I think that um, if if the bad guys, the Gaddafi supporters, would have had any sort of um, training from from ISIS, they probably would have leveled that hotel. You know, those the car bombs and things that we saw um, that the U.S. military was seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan, those IEDs that hotel would have been gone, but they, they didn't have as well, well training, uh, as we thought. So the car bomb exploded, but it did minimal damage, uh, to the hotel we'll say, but I think it sent a message to not only to us, but to everyone who was there that this is not the best place for you guys to be. Um, I remember when, when the car bomb had exploded, we had some folks who were out in town um, and then some of us were still at the hotel. And, and I remember being at the hotel with um, Ambassador Stevens and a few other guys. And, you know, we, we immediately um, reacted, you know, we, if you were in your room or if you were in the command post, we, we kind of, we all um, rallied up in the command post. We, we got positive control of the ambassador put him in our in our safe room if you will and then we started to uh, get accountability and get accountability of all the agents and the personnel who were still out in town once we had done that we we notified them hey stay there you know hold in place until we figure out what's going on the locals had come and had put um 
had put the fire out of, of what was left of the car bomb. Then a number of agents, uh, we uh, then started to clear every floor of the hotel. And we weren't really looking for um, any sort of bad actors or anything, but we were looking to ensure that our colleagues who weren't, weren't accounted for yet were not in the lobby uh, when the car bomb went off. And, and luckily they weren't. No one seemed to be um, traumatically injured, uh, but we were, we were prepared to you know, clear that out give medical aid if we needed to and, and find our people and bring them back, uh, back to our command post. So that was, that was a very interesting part of the day that I don't think I had thought about at the time, um, that I was going to be doing was clearing a whole hotel, um, with two other guys, um, and, and, and searching for Americans. But that's, that's what the, the mission had called for at the time. So, that's what we had to do. Um, I do recall um, later on that night, once things had started to die down, we ended up running. I don't want to say rescue missions. That's not necessarily the the right term, but there were a number of uh, EU countries that didn't have armored vehicles who had come to us and asked us for assistance to go out and get their ambassadors who were stuck out in town. Uh, no one knew what the threat level was, if there was going to be additional add-on attacks. So I remember us going out and, and grabbing up these other ambassadors and bringing everyone back. Um, and that went on for four or five hours. Uh, and simply because the the rebels and everyone in in Benghazi had had these snap checkpoints everywhere. So, you know, you couldn't go more than a couple miles before we, we would run into another checkpoint. So it took us a long time to get all these, these extra ambassadors back and safe. And, and we did that because ambassador ambassador Stevens had built such positive relationships with them on a political level, but we had also built great relationships with their security teams that uh, we were more than happy to help them out uh, in, in a pinch and, and get their folks back safely. That's a mission you uh, you don't hear about, right? When, say, I spent time in Benghazi uh, and, you know, during an attack, I had to go rescue a, a foreign nation's ambassadors. Right. It, you know, it was it was interesting. That's for sure. Yeah, I bet. So another TDY you had was out of, out of Chicago was Baghdad. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And that's where, uh, you first graced me with your presence uh, or, or vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> At the Marine Corps ball. Yeah. I think that's the first time we met. It was, it was, I think, uh, there was, there was another guy. Uh, and I think we, we all had, uh, I think the three of us were all board, you know, all former MSGs, and so we were hitting that party pretty hard. Um, yeah, we have a picture. Uh, they set up that there was a ca- in the cafeteria, and they they really went all out. They had these what these statues of of like a marine at Bella Wood, right? With this 
K-Bar, not as K-Bar, his bayonet, you know, stabbing literally a, an, you know, the, the, not an actor, but a, uh, whatever, a mannequin, you know, laying on the ground. They, they did a pretty good job decorating that place, setting up for all of us. Absolutely, man. Those third country nationals went all out for, for the Marine Corps ball. It was like their one chance, you know, the, There'd be there'd be beautifully uh, carved watermelon flowers, and then this giant uh, statue of a marine stabbing another, you know, a German soldier. Yeah, I, I walked out of there with a couple of my guys from the team, uh, with like my own bottle of wine, just drinking from it. I mean, we 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 had a good time. Everyone we did, did. We did yeah. for sure. And you came over from INL, right? I was. Yeah, we were uh, we were stationed out in the red zone at the Baghdad police college. And I think at the time it was called, uh, JSS shield, right? It was, it was an army. It was an army base, um, right out there, just outside Sadr city. And INL had been running, uh, protective missions, uh, or, or missions, if you will, from shield into Baghdad police college, which was right next door um, so it just seemed like the army was pulling out of that, that base. So the department of state decided that was a great place for us to be. Um, so we were out there, we were running probably, I don't know, I forget how many teams there were, maybe 10 teams. There were, there were maybe half dozen agents out there and a couple of SPSers and we were taking these INL folks uh, to their meetings. Very interesting. I think from a a protection side, Um, I, I thought I had a lot of experience right coming from Benghazi and now I'm in Baghdad and uh, all right. Hey, I know how to run. I, I can, I can do high threat protection and, and I get there and I go from being a member of the detail, right? I was, I was, limo driver follow driver when i was in benghazi to now i'm now i'm the aic right? and i have i have a team uh, of whips guys who've all been in country um uh, longer than i've been a ds agent um, so they were just a wealth of knowledge and and um getting me spun up on the things that are different about protection in iraq and dealing with the Iraqi government and the, and the individuals that we had to meet with was a totally different animal. Um, and then as AIC, I think that you have a ton more responsibility um, running those missions than, than you would as just a follow driver, right? Or, or the, the limo driver. You know, we talked about, you know, you're just a monkey in a box, right? When, when you look at protective ops, you know, at least from my perspective, like and any, any monkey can be a left rear or right rear in the diamond or, or even a follow driver. Um, but that the, the amount of responsibility when you're the AIC is, was huge. Right. And, and so you needed to be on top of your game, every mission, every venue changed and, and, even if you learned um, one venue pretty well, there was no guarantee that you were either going to go back to that venue or if things hadn't changed in the meantime, 
Uh, and I'm sure you saw that quite a bit in your own time as AIC that, you know, uh, offices change and, and people were getting promoted, you know, on, on the Iraqi side. So they would be in one office one day and a different office another. And, um, so no, no two missions were ever the same while we were out there. Yeah. The, uh, you know, last guy I had on was Tony Beltran. I don't know if you know Tony, but he was, uh, he went from, uh, you know, a shooter. He's always a shooter, but from a, you know, a regular guy in a detail to shift leader to low post shift leader <clears throat> and then made his way up. And, you know, they have shift leaders oftentimes or the whole time they have tactical command. Of course they have a tactical commander, but the AIC has overall responsibility and can supersede, you know, any, uh, any directions, coming from the shift leader or, or anything like that. And if you do supersede, if you do, and there were various few times that I did, cause I trusted my guys. I trained with my guys. I imagine you did the same on your TUI. And, um, and so we kind of knew where we fit and there, there are a few times that I superseded their orders, but when you do, uh, or even if you don't, it's always on you. And when you do and something happens, well, holy shit. Cause that's all your call. Right, you just you just uh, went against the grain, basically, of some guys that had been on the ground for so long. I had a great relationship with my team. Uh, in in my TUI, you and I met. You were TUI. I was on my permanent assignment, but in mine in 2010, I ran with so different, so many different teams, low pro, high pro, and we went all over. But I do recall going to Shield several times, and I believe there was an area, and I I wouldn't know exactly where but to get to shield from the neck from the embassy compound there was a a shady area we had to go through to get to you guys i mean you were shield was in a shady area in general right you were across the river yep um and uh i believe you guys took idf as well oh yeah we took uh, i don't think we took as much um as you would expect um but the when i was there it was right around the time, so the the U.S. military was just pulling out, and uh, Sauter had thought he kind of used it to his advantage, and he just started shelling us with IDF on a, on a regular basis. And I think he used that as quite a bit of propaganda to say, "Hey, look, I I chased the Americans out. You know, they were here, and I chased them out. And you know, realistically, probably the government, U.S. government, had made the decision to pull out a shield, or you know." months ahead of that but solder just hit us with with idf on a regular basis just to get his point across um and then you know in in at shield you know we had we had the bunkers idf bunkers like you guys did at the neck but they weren't as nice uh, and and certainly not as uh, highly visible as we had them at the neck so because it was the u.s military everyone every bunker had, you know, probably three or four layers of sandbags on top of them. So they were almost impossible to see at night. And I remember taking IDF one night and we, uh, another ARSO and I, we were, we were walking and the duck and cover went off and we'd start taking IDF and we couldn't find the bunker. We finally jumped into it. And of course there's like a giant rat in there. It's like, this is, this is what I, I can't even, I can't even run out of here. Um, I can't see it to shoot it. It would have been, 
it'd have been a nightmare if we didn't uh, uh, if we had to be in there for a long time, chase it out. Yeah, uh, you never know what's in those bunkers. We no. have, have a beer in a bunker if you're walking down the compound and IDF comes on, you run in, got a beer in your hand. Well, you know we're always at barbecues right next to the bunkers. Right, absolutely. Uh, so real quick, I want to I want to note INL is uh, International uh, Narcotics and Law Enforcement Section, right? Um, and uh, I, I have a habit of using a lot of acronyms and not explaining them, but basically, those guys were there. Well, they had a, a number of missions. From my understanding, is uh, a lot of them were there to help train the uh, local Iraqi police force, right? Like police chiefs and police men's police departments, things like that. Yeah, they, um, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Uh, and, and INL has a law enforcement component, but it, it was totally separate to the DS mission. Um, I remember a number of my protectees were, had been retired police officers or retired police chiefs from the States and had taken this contract to go over and, and then, you know, train and advise the Iraqis and, and police operations. And while that was great, uh, I, I think, um, that they were doing that, but some of the time, you know, I would get a police chief or retired sheriff from, uh, you know, Podunk, Oklahoma, who had, who had never left his County. Now all of a sudden he's thrust into, into Baghdad, into this worn torn country, and they were they sometimes were often oblivious to what was going on around them and and uh as as a young heir or so uh, i was i think i was in my mid late 20s at the time trying to advise you know a 30 year law enforcement veteran on on what he needed to do in the motorcade certainly presented uh difficulties at first right you you're trying to walk that balance and i think ds ds trains us in that and tells us that, uh, you know, about how we have to diplomatically handle some of our protectees and, and be aware of their, their wants, their needs for their meetings. But you also need to advise them of security protocols and, and ways to, to, that you needed to operate. Um, you know, a good example of that is we had a, we had one protectee, a female, um, she would not, um, she refused to wear flat shoes while on, on, in the motorcade. And, and I remember we ended up having a difficult conversation with her. Like, listen, ma'am, you can't, you can't wear high heels. Like you, if, if something happens and we need to run, I need to grab you. Uh, you know, your high heels are presenting an obstacle for us to, in order to safely get you, out of that location and get, get off the X, if you will. And, um, you know, we ended up finding a compromise and she would wear flat shoes while the motorcade was in movement. Uh, but when we got to location, she would put her high heels on and, um, she stressed to us that, you know, the cultural, um, need for her to be wearing high heels, you know, to, to gain height or whatever the case may be, so that she could deal with her Iraqi counterparts. I didn't particularly care for that reason, but 
you know, there was, that's why she was in the position that she was in and I was in the position I was in, you know, um, luckily we were able to find a compromise and even, even more so, um, luckily her motorcade never, uh, came under attack that we had to find out, um, how difficult it was to move her. I think that's a great point because you have to find a balance with these. I think that's what DS agents excel at is there's an actual diplomatic mission going on. They're trying to advance American foreign policy in whatever capacity. And it's our responsibility to protect them and not to stop them from advancing that policy, but to find a way. And that's a small example, but I had the exact same thing. It might even be the same lady, (laughs) uh, uh, same thing and same compromise. Like, listen, you're in the vehicle, you wear your flats. When we get there, you can throw them on, walk into your venue. And, you know, that way half the mission, at least if we get, we get hit while we're, uh, uh, you know, in the motorcade and we had to get out to hard point or something, then she could move. She'd be more mobile. But, uh, but I had the exact same thing with one of the ladies. And again, it might be the same one. Oh, sure. Yeah. Anyway, well, shit, all of that, and that was just uh, two TDYs out of the Chicago field office. So to bring us back, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of briefly skim over some of these just in the interest of time, and, and then I want to hit on a couple of them. But uh, you predicted the Dalai Lama, which is awesome. I finally got to do it my last year in DS, so it was pretty cool. Uh, how do you say this um, lady from Burma? Uh, that is A Song Su Chi. Okay. And she was the, uh, tell me a little bit about her. She was, she was a, a, a political, uh, at the time, I think, or, or a number of years ago, she was a political prisoner. You know, she's pro-democracy in, in Burma in a country that was under authoritarian rule. And I think they were under military control for, for a while. And because she opposed the leadership, she was, uh, in prison for a number of years. And, uh, I, I had the opportunity to protect her when she came to the United States. <clears throat> and, and before that detail, um, secretary Clinton went and visited Burma and met with a song Su Chi. And that was the very first secretary of state that had been to Burma in over 50 years. So it was a very historic visit to begin with. And, uh, I was just a temp on that, on that, on that secretary's trip. Um, well, my advance at the time, great buddy of mine, um, he, uh, put me in a position that I was, I just happened to be around. Um, I was around her. I was at her residence, uh, when the secretary was. And so when, a Song Su Chi came to the United States. Uh, she came uh, based on an invitation from Senator Mitch McConnell, who I guess they had written each other when she was a political prisoner. So she had finally been able to travel and get out. Um, she came to visit him here in the U.S., and we went uh, to his home state of Kentucky and visited his, uh, his, his this museum. Mitch McConnell... Uh, has a museum about himself and his career uh, at, at the University of Louisville. If, you, if you're shocked, uh, and so we went and uh, protected her there. Um, but because because I was 
familiar with her, you know, the, the Chicago field office leadership, um, allowed me to be, you know, in in advance on that detail and, and kind of leverage my previous experience, especially working with her staff. And, you know, I could, I could have some sort of common ground with them. So when we needed to have hard, hard conversations, I would have a relationship there already. I remember uh, that in the news at the time. Um, I forgot her name, but I remember particularly Burma and her being a political prisoner. And uh, just another example of you, DS agent, being a part of history. You know, looks like you had uh, NATO summit in Chicago, and you were in advance, but ended up basically working right next to Secret Service and the president. Yeah, I was uh, I was in advance for um, Anders Rasmussen, who who was the NATO Secretary General, and and he was the host of the of the summit itself, and it was great. We had you know the Chicago field office had worked um, Rasmussen a number of times. His his son lives in the state of Illinois. And so he would come over pretty frequently to visit his son and his grandkids. And so, um, we already had a great relationship with him and his, and his security team. So when, when the NATO summit was announced in Chicago, it was very seamless from a security perspective. Um, the summit itself was, was a massive undertaking. It, it was much like Anga is, um, but in a place that doesn't normally do UNGA. Uh, you know, I remember the DP uh, Dignitary Protection Office out of D.C. had a number of agents who were in Chicago almost weekly preparing for, for the summit. And we had, you know, there were a ton of uh, world leaders, f- um, you know, at the presidential level. So the Secret Service had a, had a number of details. DS had a ton of details and then uh, NATO being a military alliance, there were a lot of four star equivalents that were, were in town from other countries. So the department of defense ended up having quite a few folks in town to run, to run protective details, uh, not necessarily as large as we had, but more uh, on the escort level. Uh, for those individuals. So a lot of moving parts and a lot of um, people who don't normally do protection were kind of thrust into that. Um, I remember my detail itself, we we had supplemented with uh, some ATF agents, which we normally do uh, for the UN, a couple of marshals on my detail. And then I know the Secret Service were probably supplemented by by HSI agents as they normally are. So the, the, the summit itself was, was wild. There were, um, daily violent protests, you know, the, the anarchists Antifa type that were just trying to disrupt the, the summit at, at all costs. And they ran into, you know, two opposing forces hit head on, uh, between the protesters and the Chicago police department on, on more than one occasion that got pretty, got pretty heated. Um, but that, that summit, um, I was exhilarating for me, uh, 
for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, there was on the, on the plan, uh, the NATO secretary general was supposed to throw out the first pitch at a Cubs game. And so uh, as a, as a Cubs fan, being able to advance Wrigley field and get down into, uh, into the depths of Wrigley field and, and have the access that I did preparing for this advance, uh, was, was a dream come true, right? Like, you know, doing, doing a walkthrough on, on potential routes of how we're going to get from the vehicle to the field. That alone was worth, was worth the price of admission for me, uh, to be able to walk out on the field and through the dugout and everything. Um, unfortunately due to threat, the, the secretary general canceled his, his, visit to Wrigley field. So I didn't get to see it, uh, full circle, like on game day, but preparing for that advance was, was fantastic. Um, and I kind of, I laugh at it now, uh, but at the time I was pretty pissed. Um, because secretary Clinton ended up going to a Cubs game during, during the, the summit and, uh, SD just ended up taking my advance report, and I didn't see it. I didn't know that she had went until I saw it on the news that night. And I, I saw the news coverage and I saw the drop location. And I was like, sons of bitches took my report. Like that was, that was like my primary drop. And I know, I know that no one from SD had advanced it. So, um, you know, but in, in retrospect, it's like, Hey, we're all on the same team, right? I, I had already done the legwork. Why redo it? Um, but at the time, I think I was just pissed that I didn't get to do it myself. Um, but that, that detail, um, for those, for those of your listeners who are, who are familiar, you know, those, those large summits, they do, they do what they call a family photo, right. And they get everyone together. Everyone, everyone has an X on the floor, right. And, um, all the, all the protectees walk out onto the stage and they find their ex and they take this big group photo, you know, for all the world leaders who are in attendance. And the AIC at the time had brought, um, the secretary general up one side of uh, the stage and had dropped them off, but they weren't allowing any of the AICs to cross over, um, cross over the stage because of the press. So as the advance, I was on the other side of the stage waiting to pick up uh, Rasmussen. And we were going right from the family photo to a joint move with POTUS. And uh, I found myself as, I mean, I think I was an FS4. I mean, I couldn't have been any lower on the totem pole, right? Uh, and and I'm, I'm being a pseudo AIC for for a joint move uh with the president of the united states and you know my counterpart from the secret service was probably a gs-15 you know uh or or at that level and and i remember being in in the elevator it was president obama and his rasmussen and me and this secret service agent and just being like like holy shit where like how did how did this happen like where like isn't there some adult supervision around here, uh, that should be doing this instead of me. But uh, again, I think DS, uh, 
you know, expects that, you know, when you, when you complete training and you're there, you're doing the job that you can do that job, right? It doesn't matter what, what level you are. If you're an FS4 or if you're, you know, an FS1, you know, if you need to be AIC, then you're, you're AIC, you know, they thrust you into that, um, those levels of responsibility almost, almost immediately. Um, so while I was in awe of the situation, I felt more than prepared to, to do what I needed to do. Um, and then you just do a little bit of, uh, you know, a- act as if, right. Like you act as if you belong there. Uh, and, and that's just what I did. Yeah. I think that happens more often than not. I've found myself as AIC when I was just a window licker on occasion, not with the president of the United States, but, uh, you know, it happens. And, um, you know, it's kind of cheesy, but they say with do DS, like do something right. Just don't just stand there and, you know, make a move. And, uh, yeah. And we're all trained to do that. Well, okay. What else? So you had, um, I want to talk a little bit about investigations because we don't talk about that a lot on the podcast and you had one, this is when you're in Chicago. Yeah. Operation bloodhound. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, this was, um, you know, I was, I was not the lead case agent on this case. Um, but I, I had, I had my hand in it quite a bit, just, just based on the proximity and it being that case being assigned to, um, cases, uh, to agents within my group. And this was, um, this was like a two part investigation where DS was looking at the, uh, Belizean blood, um, gang for passport fraud on a wide range, wide scale. And on the other side of that, uh, Homeland security investigations and the FBI, as well as like the Chicago police department, they were looking at the same gang, but for narcotics and weapons trafficking. And somewhere along the lines, um, this kind of merged into a joint case and what was happening was they, some key members of that, um, that organization, that gang had been obtaining, um, identities of individuals who were like in, were in a nursing home and they took those identities and applied for passports for their fellow gang members and were able to get them into the country with those, with those credentials. Um, and then once they were here, then, then the, you know, the criminal element took over and they were continuing their narcotics, um, trafficking, um, pretty violent crime, um, pretty violent, uh, criminal organization in the city. But we ended up arresting, I think they, they ended up charging 23 or 24, um, known gang members with, with the passport fraud as well as, as well as the drug trafficking. This was, this this was a large, um, investigation. And, and like you said, we don't talk about it that much because I don't think that, um, our criminal investigations are usually aren't that sexy. And, um, you know, in, in my personal opinion, I don't think that DS takes the criminal program as a whole all that seriously. 
so for it to be to be such a wide case uh a larger case it was nice to be a part of it um i remember you know we also we have another mutual friend uh who on the i think the day of the takedown him and i were in a car together and i think we we pulled up we pulled up at a L stop, which is like the Chicago version of the Metro, right? Like our, our train system. And we ended up jumping out of the car and we were going to grab this one guy and, and put cuffs on him. And he, he took off running. And, uh, I remember we'll just say, we'll just say his name is Matt. Uh, you know, Matt and I ended up in a foot chase, uh, chasing this guy down the streets of Chicago, uh, to, to make this arrest. And I don't know how many guys in DS have ever been in, in a foot chase, uh, doing one of our criminal investigations, but it, it was pretty rewarding. I think, um, you know, they were doing, you know, with the, with the help of the Chicago police department and HSI, you know, we were doing vehicle stops, not me personally, but you know, the, the case agents were doing vehicle stops and, um, uh, doing some real, real good police work, in building that case uh, for the passport fraud and, and the, the drugs. I uh, might be the second agent in DS to ever be in a foot chase. Okay. I mentioned that in my book. It was a Nigerian. Anyway, prior to the, to the, uh, to the arrest, one of the, uh, it was 1811 in the office, the, uh, the continuity day said, Nigerians always run. This guy's going to run. <laughs> And sure enough, he ran. Actually, I can't say I'm the second because all of us were on were foot. There's probably four of us on foot, and the rest are in cars. And we chased the guy down. And it was a blast because, like you said, I just had an investigative program. You just don't have those opportunities. And uh, I found with investigations that the most enjoyable time was working with other agencies because they had really good cases. In particular, ICE uh, back then was called DRO, you know, de- Deportation Removal Officers. And they did all the work, and we just went make arrests with them, and we got to have some fun doing that. Um, but let's move on to your uh, your second assignment. You went to uh, to HQ, to headquarters, and you were in international programs. Yeah, I was. Um, I went to uh, overseas protective operations, and and then within that uh, division, at the time, was called uh, high threat protection. And then was later uh, renamed uh, WPS uh, for our, our WIPS um, counterparts. And the, the purpose of um, that office and, and my assignment there was I was the desk officer uh, managing the contract. The, the, the document itself that allowed... Um, our whips contractors to be operating in, in Baghdad. Um, so over, overseas protective operations <clears throat> or OPO is broken into two divisions. There's facilities protection. Um, and then there was high threat protection and facilities protection were those traditional posts with traditional guard forces, um, you know, your, your time in Vietnam or, you know, Kathmandu, some of the other places, 
they would have they would have a an FPD desk officer assigned and probably the desk officer oversaw you know three or four different posts and and they were in charge of making sure that the invoices were correct that the company that we had uh, had contracted with were upholding their side of the deal right we there was a lot of money being paid to these companies all over the world and if they didn't provide the level of security or they didn't provide the service that the government the US government was paying them for then you know we would find them in breach of contract and we would get better people in place on on the high threat side of the house there are uh, a number of different task orders and 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 your your whips guys will know this cuz i'm sure they've been on multiple task orders so if you were if you were on a movement team in baghdad then you were on task order 5 if you were uh, on the static contract <clears throat> i forget which task order that was maybe 9 um and usually you had one one desk officer and then one branch chief for for each contract just given the the huge dollar amounts um and, and the complexity of those those contracts so um for whatever reason um I had bid on this assignment uh, thinking that I was going to be more of a, a subject matter expert on, on protective operations. And uh, I don't think when I got there that I was, I was in that position. Uh, certainly by the end, um, I, I felt that I was, I was more of a subject matter expert, but, but not at the, not at the beginning. Um, we would be looking at um, everything from the visa issue, uh, and, and your 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 whips listeners again they'll they'll be very familiar with this, right? There would be the company would have difficulties getting visas to get their guys in country, um, and we would have to set up incentives, you know, financial incentives to keep those guys who were already in country to like entice them to stay there because we couldn't get anyone in there to replace them. And the embassy, you know, you and your teams, you need a certain staffing level, right? If, if you guys couldn't staff a full detail, um, cause everyone was leaving on their rotation, um, we would start to have smaller teams, right? And then if you had smaller amount of teams, and then that was less missions that, the RSO shop could support, right? And the senior RSO would have to go to the ambassador and say, hey, you know, uh, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, like we can only support X amount of missions a day because we only have this many teams. So that was that was a big, uh, a big obstacle for us during my assignment was managing the visa crisis. The other portion of that was everyone who applies uh, to be, say you got hired by Triple Canopy or Academy, uh, Dynacor, um, if you applied for a position with them and just because you got accepted by them would not mean that you would be accepted by the Department of State. So um, my colleagues and I would spend a good amount of time reviewing uh, resumes and biographies to make sure that they fit the standard that DS had set. So if we 
if we said that to be a shift leader, you need to have X amount of years experience uh, doing PSD work and you needed to have this training um, when they submitted their resume and they would have to submit supporting documentation or training certificates uh, for whatever the case may be, that would have to be reviewed by us um, to make sure that they check that box. And that, that all comes down to, again, the department of state was paying these companies a lot of money to provide that service. And if we said we needed 10 shift leaders, then they needed to have 10 qualified shift leaders. Um, and so we, we ensured that they, those individuals that they were putting in those billets were qualified. Um, and that goes from everything, everything from like, if you were wanted to be a DDM or if you wanted to be a, a medic or firearms instructor, uh, everything needed to be, to be reviewed at, at our level at headquarters. The, the downside of that assignment was um, sometimes would be the inspections and uh, you as an ARSO, you're out there, you're just trying to run your team every day, do your missions. The guys who are out there are also trying to do the same thing, right? Um, and then here I am, I'm coming from headquarters, I'm flying from, from D.C. into Baghdad, and I would have to do like, I'd have to do a hundred percent gear inventory, right? So amongst everything that's going on in country and, and your daily work, you know, I'm having these guys do a junk on the bunk inspection and they got to lay out everything that we issued them. Um, so, uh, um, weapon magazines, uh, their, their, their full kit, I would have to see, and I'd have to physically put my hands on it and count it. Uh, again, the, the amount of money that the department paid uh, for this equipment, we would, we'd have to see it. Uh, and I remember that being a giant inconvenience and uh, walking up and down the halls in these guys' rooms and like going into the room and like checking, physically counting everything. I could hear the rumbling, right? I could hear it down the hall, you know, guys pissed off that, you know, why are we doing this? And, and, you know, why is this headquarters guy here in our shit? But, um, it, it was, it was part of the job, you know? I can't imagine that being an enjoyable experience. Junk on the bunk inspections. No, no, especially, you know, all these guys, you know, they're all, you know, everyone had at least, four or five years in the military. Uh, so this is, this is 2012, 13 timeframe. So you're going to assume that everyone's got at least one or two deployments, uh, as part of the, the war on terrorism. And, and they, they think they're getting away from the bullshit, but they're just thrust, right, thrust right back into it. Yeah. I remember the term used a lot, uh, the quote unquote bio approved, because you'd have guys that have, uh, you know, one of my shift leaders rotated out and we need to back up and, and they say, well, you know, this guy, this guy, and this guy submitted and just waiting for our bio to be approved. And I'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? Who's approving this bio? I want to prove this bio. I know you're squared away. You can do it. And, uh, you know, and I believe triple canopy canopy leadership had the first look at the bio and then they submitted it to you guys. So it's a multi-step process. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, 
we were never out to, and I'm speaking for my team, um, that, that oversaw Baghdad specifically, you know, we were never out to be like, Oh, this guy's not qualified. Let's, you know, let's deny him. Um, but we just wanted to make sure that, you know, if, if they were submitting someone for that job, that, that they were the most qualified person, at least from on a paper perspective. And I can't recall, uh, more than two or three times where we, we actually denied a bio, um, for not, for not meeting the standard. And, and I think that more came into, um, if we had a personal experience with some of their credentials, right. I remember there being, there was, there was one guy who was a former, he was a former MSG. And before that he was like an admin clerk and he had wrote, he got very creative with his, uh, training and experience, uh, when he wrote his bio. And I was like, this is, this is bullshit. Like uh, I'm intimately familiar with, with exactly what you're doing. And, and that, that does not fit. That does not fit the, um, the standard that we need for a shift leader or a tactical commander, whatever the, whatever he was putting in for. So that, that one is the only one I can recall right now that I actually denied. Rightly so. Sounds like, so you got to do some PRS, uh, out of that office. It sounds like, tell us about the time because I've never heard of this in DS. So I think it's pretty funny. Uh, you were used as a body double. Yeah. So, um, Anyone who's ever been to headquarters, uh, especially if you were in, in, in international programs in IP, you're mostly, you're, you're a mid-level career guy, right? You're probably an FS3. Um, and I was the junior guy in my office, actually the junior guy in the whole, uh, division. And so anytime there was a chance to, or our office got, tagged to provide a body for a detail without a doubt i was going like it was either the fs2 or the fs4 like who's who's going to be pulling mids on this detail uh, and so i worked quite a bit of protection uh while i was there and i lucked out one time and uh prince harry had come to the states um and was going to visit uh, Miami. He was going to go party in Miami for a few days uh, in route to like a big family wedding. I think they had up in the Nashville area and, and uh, his brother was going to be there and meet him in Nashville. So we were down in Miami and uh, the paparazzi following the Royal family. Um, and I think your last uh, one of your earlier guests had had spoken about it is just insane. They're they're relentless, and so we're down in Miami, and it's it's already a, a very unorthodox detail to begin with. Um, you know, you, you're used to the right. Everyone's got dark suit, conservative tie. You know, uh, we're we're going to run two or three uh, suburbans. And I'm already working this detail and I'm in, I'm in like khakis and like a short sleeve shirt. Um, I, I probably even had boat shoes on to be honest with you. And, uh, we were attempting to 
throw off the paparazzi onto what our actual run was. And so on the arrival, we were being uh, tailed by, by members of the press. And we made the determination to the limo pulled off like one block early and they went to the actual Ron. And then the follow in which I was in, we went to a different hotel and the shift leader jumped out and let me out of the right rear thinking that um, at least from a distance, people would assume that, that I was Prince Harry and that so hopefully the paparazzi would focus on that hotel as long as possible, you know, cause we were only there for two or three days, but we wanted to keep it low key. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I, I don't think that I have, uh, any resemblance to Prince Harry, you know, certainly at the well, time. Well, well, <laughs> there's the ginger aspect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> At, at the time, certainly at the time, I, I I had hair, so it was it was an easier sell, you know. Um, but and 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 so we jumped out at that at that secondary hotel, and they walked me in. They did it two or three times, and and we were able to keep the paparazzi off of our actual location for at least a day, maybe even a day and a half until someone at the hotel had outed us. And, wow, and, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was surprised, and and, and I mean, it, it's it's humorous, um, but it's also exciting, right? Like, no one would ever, no one would ever think that uh, again. We're doing body double stuff uh, in, in DS, but it's all smoke and mirrors, right? And and if we can keep our protectees safe and and out of the limelight for you know a day, then that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna do. Yeah probably not very common but uh you know that's what ds it lets you be creative you know when you're when you're manager detail you're it's your detail and you can kind of do what you want and uh that's pretty creative for for the listeners that aren't familiar the ron is is basically the hotel where the protect evil stays so at room overnight is what it means or rest overnight um that's pretty good, man. So cool. So after IP, you went on to Kabul. What'd you do in Kabul? Uh, Ariso Kabul. Uh, I was assigned to um, counterintelligence in the vetting unit. And there we, um, I was running uh, the polygraph program as well as uh, overseeing a number of the Foreign Service National Investigators. And Kabul had, I think we had 20, maybe, maybe even 25 uh, Foreign Service National Investigators who were conducting all the background checks and investigations on locally engaged staff. Um, and, and as they completed their backgrounds before they could be hired to work at the embassy, you know, in any capacity, whether they were you know, a driver or a janitor, whatever the case may be, they had, they had to be submitted to uh, a polygraph. And so the department of state had hired um, a number of retired either FBI or DEA agents who were polygraph examiners to come in country and and administer those. So I had the opportunity to, 
to kind of run that program, which was great. And, and, uh, the guys I worked with were, were fantastic. We're, we're true professionals. And, um, you know, one individual, you know, happened to be when he was an FBI agent was assigned to the Chicago field office. And, and so him and I had had a great relationship and, you know, we were, you know, up at four o'clock in the morning watching like the Blackhawks hockey game, um, together, but, it was an interesting program uh, in the sense of one DS doesn't have a lot of exposure with the polygraph itself, just because of um, the department's um, memo policy to not polygraph department of state employees. Um, So you, you really have a limited exposure unless you're in, in this particular program. So uh, I was able to learn a lot about, the test itself, but also what, what those examiners are looking for, um, when we're interviewing the locally engaged staff and, and, uh, ensuring that they're being truthful and honest as far as their relationship, um, with known terrorist organizations or or whatever the case may be. Uh, I found it to be, um, it was difficult. I don't think it was difficult for us to hire um, individuals at the embassy in Kabul, but it was difficult to find someone who didn't have some sort of link to, to Al Qaeda or the Taliban, right? They're just having been in that country for so long, you were, you were bound to have a family member who, who was probably associated with those um, bad actors at some, some point in their lives. So, the, the polygraph itself was, was a crucial part of the hiring process. Um, and then the FS and I's were just, you know, your time in, in probably uh, Vietnam or, or even Erbil, you know, your FS and I's are, are vital parts of, it's uh, part of the RSO team, if you will. You know, those are guys who, who have years and years of experience and relationships. And, um, you know, we were very fortunate to have that in Kabul as well. FSNI is foreign service national investigator, and they're basically your local investigators on the ground. They speak the language they know the culture. Yeah. And they're invaluable, not just for investigations, for liaison, for you name it, a number of different, different things. Cool, man. And that's where you ended up. Uh, you ended with DS, right? Did you do, uh, did you finish up in Kabul or did you, uh, leave? No, I, I, uh, I resigned from DS about six months into my, into my one year tour. Um, it was, uh, it was a great assignment. Uh, I had a, I had a great onward, um, great onward assignment after Kabul. Uh, but I, I chose, that? where were you supposed to go? I was, I was set to go to Guatemala city. Okay. Um, you know, and, th- and this goes back to, uh, you know, my time in, in headquarters. Uh, again, when you're, when you're the junior guy, um, and you know, every, everyone knows, everyone knows who the junior guy is. Right. And so I had, you know, Doug Allison and John Eustace, two heavyweights, I think in the DS world, um, those were my bosses there. So when it was time for me to bid on my onward assignment and, 
John Eustace was on the uh, assignment panel. Like he clearly, he clearly went to bat, you know, uh, Guatemala was my first choice and remarkably I, I got it. And then I got it on the first panel, which was, you know, not unheard of. Unheard of. Exactly. So, uh, you get taken care of a little bit when you, uh, when you do a headquarters assignment. Right on. Uh, I don't want to put you in a jam, but you want to tell us anything about what you're doing now. You're still with the government. You're in 1811. I am. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, uh, 1811. Uh, I'm in the OIG community now, uh, here in Chicago. Uh, we're doing pretty, uh, Everyone who thinks that they know about the OIG community, it's, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, and I will say for my particular agency, uh, that couldn't really be uh, further from the truth. I think I've been here uh, five years now. I don't think I've worked an employee misconduct case yet. Um, I spend uh, almost every day working criminal investigations and we, my agency focuses on uh, food stamp fraud and um, dog fighting. So um, I have a lot of great joint cases, you know, pretty much the other side of the coin compared to DS where, um, you know, criminal cases are, uh, and large scale criminal cases are an everyday thing, everyday occurrence. It's been uh, very rewarding um, career change, if you will. You know, if you like police work, then, uh, this was a great, this was a great career change for me, um, or agency change, if you will. Um, I think I've had some, I've had some good cases that, you know, have resulted in, um, multiple arrests, uh, millions of dollars in restitution, millions of dollars, uh, in seized assets, uh, which is, you know, not something that I would even coming over having six years with DS or five years with DS uh, coming over. I never thought that I'd, I would work a case that had that type of uh, monetary um, impact or uh, arresting uh, and, and having, you know, six or seven individuals uh, sentenced uh, to years of incarceration, uh, just based off of my work, um, and, and, and millions of dollars in seized assets. So, uh, it's been, it's been quite the change, but I, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. Right on, man. Well, good catching up. Let's, let's end with this. What, what advice would you give to an aspiring DS agent? I think that I think of two things. Uh, you know, first is uh, be an asset, not a liability. Right? Um, you know, learn your job, uh, master your job before um, you try and take on more things that you can than you can handle. Right? DS is gonna DS is gonna throw you uh, into a lot of situations that you may or may not be prepared for. So, you know, try and be prepared as possible, you know, continue, continue to learn. Um, even if you've been on five, 10 years, you know, you never know what your next assignment is going to be. And it could be different than 
every other one that you've previously had. So never, never stop learning. Um, secondly, I would say is, um, you know, your having a solid family unit is, is crucial to success. I think, um, you know, your friends, your family, uh, if they're not, if they're not supportive, um, of what you're doing, uh, it's going to make for a difficult career. Right. And so you need to be able to articulate to your, to your, your support network, you know, what it is that you're doing, um, and why you're not around or why you're traveling so much or why you're living overseas for a year at a time that can certainly wear on your family. So, uh, having a good support network makes it easier, um, when you're on a one year unaccompanied tour, um, that's one less stress that you have to deal with, right? You know, Baghdad or Beal, Kabul, you know, uh, any of the posts in Pakistan, that, that type of stuff, uh, is going to wear on you physically and mentally. And so you got to be able to rely on your family, um, for that support. And so got to have a good, solid, solid support network. I think wise words. And probably uh, more unique unique advice because I don't I don't I haven't heard anyone. Maybe back in the day I've heard people say that, but uh, for new agents, especially those with families, that's vitally important. All right, man. Well, this was fun. Yeah, like what, man. Thanks for catching up, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop recording, but uh, hang tight real quick. We'll chat after this. Appreciate you coming on, man. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, buddy. Right, that's episode four, Matt Kovats. Thanks to Matt for coming on. Uh, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, if any of you are interested in hearing more stories from these individuals, let me know. Find a way and let me know. So a couple things, some little house cleaning items. Uh, if you want to learn some other stories, I have a book out, Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It is selling well. It is sold on Amazon in paperback. You can buy it in Kindle and as an audible or an audiobook from Audible. Uh, you can go through my website, codyperron.com, and get there. Or I expect, since it's 2020, most of you have an Amazon account that you can just go to and get it there directly. Uh, other things on the website have social media, agents unknown underscore book. You can be found on the website, or that is my Instagram handle. Check it out. That's the one I'm most active on. I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, I do have a group called Becoming a DSS Agent. For those of you that are interested, it's a private Facebook group, and it's just basically to build community, to network, to uh, answer some questions. Really run by the people in the group. Um, Sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes they have questions, and I chime in wherever I can. So if you're interested in that, Becoming a DSS Special Agent, in uh, on Facebook, just uh, fill out the information. I have a few questions there. Just answer it if you could. Um, also, on my website, YouTube videos. I do YouTube videos. It's called Life as a DS Special Agent or something like that. Uh, I'm going to expand those into different things, uh, whether it be personal safety, security, executive protection stuff. I don't know. I'm going to expand it. But right now, for those of you looking for intel on DS, uh, YouTube, just you, you just go uh, YouTube my name when you go in, search Cody Perron, 
and uh, and my channel will pop up, and you know you can watch those videos. Also on the website is a blog. I haven't done much on it. It's only so much hours in the day. That's an excuse. Shouldn't make that excuse. But you know I'm uh, focused on the podcast right now and continue to promote the book. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at. But I will get the blogs up. But anyway, check it all out. And uh, you can reach me at info at codyperron.com if you're interested in or have some questions about anything, give me a shout. Otherwise, y'all stay safe. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you.